Welcome to the Vine Podcast. This is Warren, and we returned a couple of weeks ago from a long hiatus for one of our Vine Stories episodes that, that we're going to begin doing. And we're actually going to return with, with our next sort of installment of that series for our next podcast recording that'll come out in a couple of weeks. But today we're, we're coming back from another sort of long hiatus with a, uh, a sort of classic Vine podcast episode. So joining me for a conversation today is Dr. Jason Martin. Well, welcome back to the podcast, Jason. Hey, uh, it's, it's nice to kind of be back into the swing of things. It's been a long time since you and I had a conversation in this format uh, and so I'm looking forward to, to what we're going to discuss today. This is fun. Yeah, we, we, uh, we have had many conversations over the last few months, right. but not in this format. So, right. <laughs> so this is good to be, back, to be back together here. I was reminding Jason the other day that uh, this podcast started in the early days of the pandemic with he and I discussing scripture together as kind of our replacement for Bible class, basically. That was mm-hmm. what it was at the very beginning mm-hmm. when we couldn't meet in person anymore. And so we're going to kind of return to that today with a conversation about one of Jesus's parables. And this is a parable that's found in Matthew 22. And this episode today is is going to sort of work in concert and in conjunction with my my sermon from from this past Sunday's sermon, if you're listening to this uh, on on the week that it is released, at least. So I'm going to talk about some of this parable, specifically sort of the end of it and some ramifications for kind of how we may think about the end of this parable in in that sermon on Sunday. But I realized it was going to be just too much stuff to fit into one sermon, and I thought some of it would probably be better to discuss conversationally anyways. And so we're going to kick some of this stuff around with this parable in Matthew 22 today. And so before we get into that, though, I thought we'd, we'd talk about parables sort of just generally before we jump into this parable, because this is, it's a difficult one to, to sort of interpret and make sense of anyways, as some of Jesus's parables happen to be. And, and this one certainly stands out to me, at least, as, as one of the more difficult ones in part. Some of the parts are, are seemingly kind of easy to parse out, but others not so much. And so to, to kind of begin talking about parables briefly here at the beginning and kind of how we read parables, uh, Jason, I kind of want to kick it to you. I'm, I'm curious, kind of at this point in, in your life and faith journey, how do you sort of read and approach parables and has that changed over the course of time? Yeah, so I, I mean, if you go through sermon, you know, various sermons and books and blog posts and podcasts and any kind of uh, anything that anyone has produced about faith life and about scripture, there's a good chance that a lot has been discussed about parables. And I think the reason is because, and I think this is pretty clear, that parables can be a bit obtuse, like, we don't always know, what are these parables saying? What am I to learn from this? And so I think, well, okay, so in my day job, uh, I'm a psychotherapist, and uh, and I teach uh, psychotherapy and counseling um, in, in a graduate program, and I use a lot of metaphors. And I've become pretty known and adept at taking a concept that someone can understand and relate to and put it into a metaphor and then drawing a parallel between that and, uh, and, and the concept that I'm wanting the client or the student to better understand. And that has served me pretty well uh, in my job as a therapist and as uh, a professor. I see some of that in the in the parables that Jesus talks about or that Jesus describes throughout the Gospels. Um, the problem, though, and this is why there is so much written about parables, I believe, is that there are so few explanations. There's so few description of, you know, what what am I to take away from this? In a particular parable, 
Who represents the various characters? What represents the various events that occur in the parables? And there are so many different books and articles and, and um, you know, papers written about that. There's so much discussion, so many sermons. And some of them are really helpful. Others are problematic. I think the ones that are helpful leave open to the possibility maybe even the likelihood that we can't fully understand what is being said in the parable because we are so far removed contextually from that. So the parables that Jesus describes is something presumably that he is describing, you know, in first century AD. So more than 2000 years ago. And here we are in the United States in the year 2023, as we're recording this, um, among, you know, living in a country that is predominantly Christian, uh, that does not have the same degree of, you know, cultural and uh, just cultural and social oppression that the Jews who were the original hearers of those parables at the time would have been suffering. We don't live under those circumstances and we don't have the same... um, you know, cultural norms. We don't have the same implications. And so I think the the parables probably include a lot of things that Jesus leaves unsaid that maybe the original readers of the Gospels and the people who were actually there in the moment might have understood a little bit better than us. Now, having said that, there's also the problem that even Within scripture, we see his disciples and the Pharisees and whoever else may be hearing struggling with the meaning. You know, we, we see in time and time again, the, uh, the people that he's speaking to don't fully understand what the parables are trying to teach as well. And so I think that there is a, there has to be a high level of humility that anyone has whenever they read the parables that says, that suggests, I don't really know exactly what this is trying to say. Uh, and I think anyone who says otherwise is is either a victim of their own hubris, their own arrogance, or is oversimplifying things probably more than they should. And so that's the attitude with which I try to bring to any discussion about parables in the Bible. There, Yeah, there are certainly things to learn. Um, but unfortunately, I don't think that we are in a place or a time where we can fully understand exactly what what we are to gain from from these parables. Yeah, I think that's a good that's a good setup because I think yeah. In in addition to well, well, kind of, as you said, there's there's cultural differences and distance between us and Jesus, and and there aren't many explanations. Which leaves us certainly with with a lot of questions, and as as you've said, you know there there may be something that would seem obvious to Jesus's original readers that we just miss. Mm-hmm. But I think it also leaves us with questions like: so should we read these stories more allegorically, where every single piece of the story connects to something that it is representing or symbolic of? Um, is, is every detail in the story supposed to, supposed to point us towards something else or represent something else? Right. Or should we approach them more narratively where Jesus is driving toward a certain point and kind of there are aspects of the story that just don't necessarily have their own meaning. They just sort of serve the, the, the purpose of kind of the main point that he's making. And I don't think that's a question we can answer fully. And I think it's probably a little of both at times. I think any time, any time that we try to draw parallels, which that's um, the the parables are an attempt to represent the kingdom of God or a particular lesson or teaching symbolically. It's meant to represent things symbolically, and whenever you use symbolism, and this isn't a fault of Jesus's by any means. I think this is just inherent in the form. Whenever you use something symbolically it's not always going to align a hundred percent. And so we have to be careful about how far we take those things. So like I said, I use a lot of metaphors in my teaching and in my therapy. There's always a point at which even the best metaphor breaks down. 
Right. I was going to say, there's, there's a reason we have the saying, every, every, every metaphor breaks down at some point. Absolutely. And, and no matter how good it is, it's going to break down. And so if you scrutinize yeah. a parable enough, you're going to find an application in that that may not necessarily be the application that Jesus is intending. And so we have to have a way to discern what what is it really that we're reading and what is it that 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 Jesus wants us to take away from this. Yeah, he begins many of the parables by saying the kingdom of heaven is like. Right. And then goes on. And I think sometimes almost in our sort of exploration of them, we try to take out the word like. Yes. <laughs> as if Jesus is saying the kingdom of God is. Yeah. No, he's saying it's like this. This yeah. is sort of, this is, this is a picture of it. It's, it's to, to give you an idea. And in some cases, as, as I said in my sermon, or we're, so we're recording this before Sunday, but it'll come out after. So as I am planning to say in my sermon, um, and I've said this before in sermons, that I think even in the parables, Jesus, uh, they're told in a way that revealed truths of the kingdom to those who are ready to hear it, but also concealed truths of, this, of, this, of the kingdom from those who were not. And so they're intentionally sort of vague at times. And, and I think because of all those reasons, I do think one more point that I want to make about parables before we dive into the one in Matthew 22 is that I think because of all of those things, in addition to reading them with humility, uh, as you said earlier, reading them with curiosity, I think, as we both kind of been speaking to, I, I think it, there's also value in reading parables with, with creativity and imagination. Hmm. I think that's I think that's part of the point of parables. And I think that's why Jesus's parables are, are so enduring is because there are aspects of them that we can find and, and connect to parts of modern life, even though these are ancient stories that we may, may not ever be able to know all the interpretation of and, and cultural context of. Uh, I think part of the reason they, they have endured to such an extent is because they, they allow us to approach them with some imagination and creativity. And one of the, the, the sort of biblical examples of this that I've sort of held on to actually comes from one of Paul's letters, or at least a letter that's attributed to Paul from 2 Timothy. And so I want to read this, this section of 2 Timothy, because there's this part where he sort of starts talking metaphorically. So I understand this isn't specifically one of Jesus's parables, but I think it, it communicates a truth about parables. So he's talking to presumably Timothy, and he says, You then, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things you have heard me say in the presence of many witnesses entrust to reliable people who will also be qualified to teach others. Join with me in suffering like a good soldier of Christ Jesus. No one serving as a soldier gets entangled in civilian affairs, but rather tries to please his commanding officer. Similarly, anyone who competes as an athlete does not receive the victor's crown except by competing according to the rules. The hardworking farmer should be the first to receive a share of the crops. And so Paul gives these three images of an athlete, of a soldier, of a farmer. And then he says, reflect on what I am saying for the Lord will give you insight into all this. Hmm. And he doesn't say, here's what I mean. It's, it's as if he just wants Timothy to sit with it. Yeah. Like you, here's, here's sort of the packaging, or here's the elements, or how, whatever metaphor you want to assign to that. And now you sit and reflect on it and spend time with God with that stuff, and God will do something within you and all these images. Yeah, that's a great... That is a great description because I think we sometimes make the mistake of assuming that if we read something in the scripture, that that is telling it, that we are to be a passive receptacle for whatever information we're getting from the scripture. And, right, and that scripture right, right. really seems to command that that Timothy and presumably subsequent readers, including ourselves, need to be active in our interpretation. We need to not just take in what is being given to us in what is written, but we also need to discern how that plays out, that we need to be open to the Spirit of God working within us around the interpretation of that scripture, perhaps in ways that might be different from one person to the next. Right, absolutely. 
And so my favorite modern example then of this is really comes from Martin Luther King Jr., who his approach to the Good Samaritan parable was really sort of influential in rethinking how I approached parables as I read them. And so I don't so some may be aware of, of some of Martin Luther King Jr.'s thoughts on the Good Samaritan parable, but I think he provides a great template in, in his approach to the parable to help us think about parables in general. And so if you remember, uh, in, the, in the story of the Good Samaritan, there's a Levite and a priest who are religious leaders, and they are going on the road between Jerusalem and Jericho, and they pass a man who's been beaten up, robbed, and left for dead, and they don't stop to help him. They pass by on the other side of the road, but eventually a Samaritan man does stop to help. And I think we typically read that story as as if the Levite and the priest are either too busy to stop and help him, they're in a hurry, they don't want to be made unclean, things like that. Mm-hmm. But in, in Dr. King's remarks on this parable, he said, we use our imagination a great deal to try to determine why the priest and the Levite didn't stop. And then he, has, he goes on for a while to kind of offer some suggestions. But then he says, but I'm going to tell you what my imagination tells me. It's possible that those men were afraid. You see, the Jericho Road is a dangerous road. I remember when Mrs. King and I were first in Jerusalem, we rented a car and drove from Jerusalem down to Jericho. And as soon as we got on that road, I said to my wife, I can see why Jesus used this as the setting of his parable. It's a winding, meandering road. It's really conducive for ambushing. And he goes on to talk about how in the days of Jesus, it was known as the Bloody Pass. It was a common place for robberies and and things like this to take place. And so he goes on to talk about how it's possible that this Levite and priest, you know, again, just in the sort of imagination of Jesus as Jesus is telling the story, Maybe they're looking around and they're wondering if the robbers are still there. Is the same thing that happened to this guy going to happen to me if I stop to help? Is it a setup for, you know, a further robbery and, and beating? And he says, so the first question that the priest asked and the first question that the Levi asked was, if I stop to help this man, what will happen to me? But then the Samaritan came by and he reversed the question. If I do not stop to help this man, what will happen to him? And, and I think that's sort of, in some ways, a subtle difference in thinking about it. But again, in my heritage, in my, my past, I had always sort of heard that story presented as, well, they were in a hurry, or they didn't care enough, or, or they didn't want to be unclean. Mm-hmm. But I think just in exploring another possibility of their motive, it leads you towards some different thoughts about the story. But then what I really appreciate about the way he thinks about this is that his imagination didn't stop there. Because he keeps going then. And King also thought about the story more broadly and conceptually, because then he eventually says, On the one hand, we are called to play the Good Samaritan on life's roadside, but that will be only an initial act. One day we must come to see the whole Jericho Road must be transformed so that men and, men, men and women will not be constantly beaten and robbed as they make their journey on life's highway. True compassion is more than flinging a coin to a beggar, It is not haphazard and superficial. It comes to see that an edifice which produces beggars needs restructuring. And so I love that idea of like, yeah, there's one aspect of helping this guy in need. Then there's the other aspect of what are some things we can put in place as a society systemically to keep these things from happening. Yeah. And, and I like that just sort of, that's, that's a very imaginative uh, sort of way of reading that parable, I think. Yeah, because it 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 doesn't just um, suggest that we need to respond to our immediate circumstances, but that we need to look at the whole of the of the environment and the context and and do good and you know be the the salt and light, as it were, uh, in terms of creating an environment that that is godly, you know? And so it's not just about, well, how, how, who am I encountering who I might could possibly, positively affect? So it's not just a matter of when can I be the good Samaritan as it were? That's Mm -hmm. a nice lesson to take away. And perhaps we need to be looking at those, those opportunities, 
But it's also a matter of how might I be able to affect change in a uh, in a in a broader context, in a context that looks not just at who is suffering, but what is the environment that is enabling or perpetuating suffering. Right. Yeah. Okay, so all with so that was a lot of setup. Yeah. So Oh, that was setup. Oh wow. With 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 all of that. <laughs> let's dive in now. Man, so all right. We're, we're gonna we're gonna get into well that was a good discussion about parables in general. Yeah. But I, I do want to spend some time thinking about this one specifically in Matthew twenty two. And so I uh I'm gonna read this for us and then I tell you what, I'll I'll read it. This is Matthew twenty two, one through fourteen. And then Jason, if you want to jump in with just what what initial thoughts uh, do you have about this parable? Maybe connected to some of what we just talked about, or otherwise, and yeah. and then we'll jump off from there. So Matthew twenty two one through fourteen it says Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, "The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come." Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who had been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged and he sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you can find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to see the guest, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, How did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, Tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. Hmm. All right, Jason. (laughs) What hits you first? Oh, man. There's so much to unpack in this parable because I mean this this is the epitome of a parable where you are tempted and and not unreasonably but you're tempted to try to see okay within this parable who is what who plays what role you know who are mm-hmm. the pharisees who are god who who might be god or jesus who is God's people? What are the parallels here? And it's really difficult to to assess that, first of all. Um, and second of all, it's kind of challenging to see, well, what actually is the message here? Um, and, and you may be getting to this a little bit later, so I'm not going to go into this too much. But there's, you know, clues at the end of chapter 21 uh, that kind of indicate maybe a little bit of that. Uh, but and a little bit at the end, I mean, at the end of that, the next section of Matthew talks about, you know, paying imperial taxes to Caesar. And so, you know, chapter divisions and, and section divisions within the Gospels are notoriously problematic because it kind of decontextualizes things. And, and I think mm-hmm. this is a victim of that. But as I read through this, what really stands out to me are are two well really three things there are three parts in this that just really confuse me and make it difficult for me to square this particular parable with what i believe to be true about jesus and god and the messages that we're attempting to be thrown uh, that we are are intended to receive from these the first is just the pure violence um like verse six and verse seven, uh, verse six says the rest, meaning the, those who 
you know, paid no attention, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized the king's servants, mistreated them, and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army to destroy those murderers and burned their city. That feels a lot more violent than I'm used to hearing in a parable. Certainly more violent than I'm used to hearing in the New Testament. That feels very much like Old Testament stuff. Um <laughs> which I, I don't really know what to make of that in a New Testament parable, but there it is. Uh, mm-hmm. So that's the first, first thing that stands out. The second thing that stands out is the man who showed up not wearing wedding clothes. I, I assume that there is a cultural expectation that first century readers would have known, uh, known about that this is alluding to. But it says that uh, he, the king noticed that a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. And he asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? And the man was speechless. And so this is right after the king had sent out servants to the street to presumably just invite whoever was around to come to the banquet. And so the cultural expectation may have been you know, was it that he was given wedding clothes and chose not to wear them? Is it that he was, you know, uh, wearing, you know, something else that was seen as offensive? You know, what what is it about the wedding clothes specifically that we're to gain from that? I, I think there's a cultural expectation there that I simply am not aware of. And to my knowledge, no one has really done a good job of being able to describe, at least without just being pure speculation. And then the third thing that that stands out to me is how the king responds to the man without wedding clothes. And it says in verse 13, the king told the attendants, tie him hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. I don't know what to get from those verses, you know? So there's the violence that the... um, the invitees have towards the servants and then that the king has towards those invitees. There is the expectation of the wedding clothes and then there is the kind of retribution for the man who did not wear the wedding clothes. There's so much to unpack there that I simply don't think that we have enough information to really understand. Um, but even with that, it it feels... Uh, a lot more violent, a lot more punitive, and a lot less graceful than a lot of the other parables that we read about. So I'm left with a lot of questions and not much in the way of of answers. Yeah, this this one's a struggle, I I think. And so I I appreciate you kind of enumerating those those questions, because I do think those those provide us with um again yeah just with with difficulties of how we read this and i think you're right you know when you when you get to the end the the conversation about the the wedding clothing which is primarily kind of where where my sermon kind of stays in in that part of the story but there is there is some thought that that people at that time would have been provided wedding clothes especially for a king's uh, son's wedding would have either been provided clothes or that that servants sort of at the gates. So there's some thought that that maybe his clothes were just dirty um, and he didn't get some type of cleaning that would have been available to him at the gates um, or, or that he at least had the means to to purchase them himself. Some people theorize, well, since the king calls him friend, this is an indication that he is someone else of means who the king knows had these clothes and basically is sort of, you know, public, publicly and intentionally insulting the king by not wearing them mm. to, this, to this banquet. Uh, but even then, there's different thoughts about, why did he call him friend? Is this kind of sarcastic? Yeah. Is he actually a friend? How do we read that word and his, his, his tone there? All of which, again, to go to some of our other earlier thoughts, is subjective and open to interpretation. Yeah. I do think that we one one of the things that we do seem to see Jesus do in some parables is is throw something in at the end of a parable that is either done almost for shock value 
or that takes the parable in a different direction. Well, it's clearly meant to turn the parable and the expectations on its head. Right. Yeah. And I think he does. I think Jesus does that frequently. Like if, if, if you think even of this, the story of the prodigal son, yeah. which is the story about, right, one son leaves, then he comes back uh, and, and everything is good. And the dad welcomes him back. And then Jesus adds on this like little part at the end where, where the older brother who stayed and worked isn't happy about it. And instead of having joy is angry. And it's this part added to the end that just kind of adds this sort of this twist to the end of the story that I think is meant to catch people off guard and, and meant to kind of um, hmm. to, to be shocking in a way. Interesting. And I think that's part go, – go ahead. Well, I, I was interesting to hear you say that because I've always – well, not always, but more recently come to believe that it's that later, later part is really the main crux of that parable. That the parable is is not so much about the the son or the the younger son who goes out and lives mm-hmm. a, a you know presumptively sinful life and then comes back with his tail between his legs, but it but the parable is really about the older brother who is rejecting of that and how the father you know. Uh, you know, thanks the older brother and appreciates and respects him for having been so loyal, but encourages and even and chastises him a little bit to be more welcoming of the younger brother who was lost and is now found. I, I've always thought, saw that, well, not always again, but uh, re- more recently I've seen that as kind of the point of the parable. Um, and again, that's because of placing it in context. Yeah, I don't disagree. I don't disagree. But what I think is, is that, so if you look at that story specifically, it comes in a string of the lost parables, right? right. Where you have the parable of the lost sheep, it comes back, lost coin, right. she finds it. Uh, and then the lost son, who then comes back. And, and they, they line up almost perfectly yes. with those elements. But then that last story has that element at the end that is unexpected, not only because of the way the brother responds, I think, but also because it it leaves the pattern of the first two stories. Hmm. And I think that helps drive that point home, which I think you're right. I think that is the point that Jesus is driving to in that story. Mm-hmm. And I think the unexpected nature of it and how it catches people off guard drives it home all the more powerfully. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And so, yeah, so I don't disagree with you. Um, and and I, I think something is similar happening here where it's like th- there's there's something unexpected about that turn at the end. And so here's just me personally. I don't read the end of this parable so much as Jesus making a statement about hell as some people would or a statement about God's wrath as it is a a a sort of a way to give emphasis to whatever this person did that would have been insulting to the king. Mm-hmm. And I think it's to, to just, it adds weight to that and draws our attention towards that. Yeah. And I'm going to spend a lot of time on that in the sermon tomorrow, so I won't spend much more time there. But, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, I did, I, I, I listened to, uh, there's a, a, New Testament professor, I listen to her, some of her thoughts on, on these types of stories. And she talks about these stories that, that deal with the quote unquote weeping and gnashing of teeth. There's, yeah. a, there's a couple of times, a few times where Jesus uses that phrase. And, and what she says about these stories is she said, these, these stories are not so much asking the question, what happens to us when we die? As I think we sometimes want to read into them as they are more asking the question, uh, how should we live today? Hmm. And I think that's a good way to think about it. And I think that flips. Like we, we sometimes want these, these stories to be almost predominantly or mainly about the afterlife when perhaps that's not the intent that Jesus has when he's telling it. Hmm. Yeah. I, but I don't know. Well, I mean, this is probably a, another podcast or even series of podcasts all into itself. But I do, I do think there, there is a conversation to be had around you know how much how much do we maybe read into various things especially in the new testament 
uh, about the afterlife that maybe is better read as um, something we should implement and think about and and address within our current you know our current situation it's not just about life after death I, I think there is something to be said for a lot of the assumptions that we make about the Bible and and uh, especially some of Jesus's teachings some of which are in, I think in uh, implied or directly stated to be about you know the the life to come as it were uh, but some of it I think is probably not so much so yeah and like you said there's there's a lot of conversation there I do think it's it's a common question about this this parable specifically but also about a lot of Jesus's other uh, rhetoric that can sound um I don't know if judgmental is the right word, but it can, there's a lot that sounds at least having to do with final judgment. I guess yeah. if you want to think about judgmental in that term. Yeah. Um, and, and I think there's a lot to wrestle with there. That is, I, I do think that's conversation that I would like to, to explore more at some point, but we won't get there today. So, yeah. <laughs> um, there's, I mean, and, there's always more to speak about when it comes to the, these uh, kind of topics. There's always more to speak about, yes, yeah. especially with, with that type of thing. Right. I do think, you know, when when you pull back from from the immediate story here in Matthew 22 and you look at, as you kind of referenced earlier, what comes right before it and what comes right after it, mm-hmm. I do think it helps shed some light on on what Jesus is doing here. Because if you go back to Matthew 21, the chapter right before this, Jesus has entered Jerusalem on kind of his, this is his final entry into Jerusalem before he's, he's going to be crucified. And he promptly has several encounters, uh, confrontational encounters uh, in, to, in, some, in some instances mm-hmm. with the Jewish leaders. And, and therein, we see certain themes begin to develop, largely that the Pharisees and other religious leaders believe that they are seemingly... They believe themselves to be sort of first in line as those who are headed to the kingdom of God. And Jesus continually says, eh, probably not. Like, you've missed something. <laughs> you've missed something about scripture. You've missed something about who I am. Uh, he, he tells them this in a number of different ways. And at one point then, he says, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to you to show you the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes did. So again, I think you can hear that almost, that there's allusions to the, to the parable in that. That you have these people who were invited, who should be the guest at the wedding, and they have resisted the invitation. And so the servants go out and just invite anyone in, and... A group that I think Jesus is saying here would include sort of the tax collectors and prostitutes and those who would have been sort of considered the sinners and the outsiders of society. Uh, and he says they have, have basically responded to the invitation where you have not. He says, even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. And, and so then in chapter 21, he goes on to tell a parable with similar imagery to, to the story that we've been talking about. And then he says, therefore, I tell you to the, again, to the Pharisees and, and the religious leaders, he says, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. And so I think we can see this theme developing where the Pharisees and the religious leaders of the day are supposed to be the ones championing the cause of God and his kingdom, but instead they're, they're corrupt, they're power hungry, they don't have any concern for the poor. They're, they're totally missing what Jesus is trying to do amongst them. And so it's as if they are, they are rejecting the, the invitation. And, and so because of that, Jesus says that what they have will be taken from them and given to those who respond in the way of righteousness and who produce fruit of God's kingdom. And so then at the end of 21, Matthew says, when the chief priest and Pharisees heard Jesus's parables, they knew he was talking about them. So it's like they catch on. They know what he's doing. Yeah. So they once again start looking for a way to arrest him. And then at the beginning of chapter 22, which is where this parable is, it says 
it begins by saying that, that Jesus answered them again in parables. And I think that's an important distinction because the way that it reads in the NIV just says Jesus spoke to them again in parables. But the actual probably better, better translated phrase there would be Jesus answered them in parables, almost as if this is continued dialogue between Jesus and the Pharisees and religious leaders. And, and even in chapter 23, Jesus goes on to continue wailing on the Pharisees. That's, there's, a ch- there's a section of chapter 23 where Jesus continually says, Woe to you, Pharisees, and, um, and what does he call them there? Teachers of the law and Pharisees. And he just, I mean, he kind of just takes them to town in, in that part as well. So there's this continued trend of Jesus sort of kind of speaking out against the Pharisees and what they have done. And I think when you read it that way, I do think that there are some elements of the story that we could sort of assign to different people or different groups where, where God begins to sort of be, be represented by the king in the story. And, and the servants then are God's messengers who have been sent out. You, you make it get specific about that and see the, those as specifically the prophets in the yeah. Old Testament and then John the Baptist and ultimately Jesus who are sort of God's messengers and messengers who have repeatedly been rejected. mistreated yeah. and rejected by Israel as a people to some extent, but even more specifically by Israel's leaders. And, and now that's opening the door for this broader invitation to extend out from there. So in that, with that thinking, who is the person who, who wasn't wearing wedding clothes? Or what? I don't know who or what does that represent? Great question. I think that's, I mean, that what you just described, I think makes a lot of sense. And if it just were to end there, I could, you know, I could take that parable and be like, oh yeah, I totally get what this is saying. But then there's a guy who shows up not in wedding clothes and okay, maybe that was a mistake. Maybe he shouldn't have done that, but he's treated pretty, uh, harshly because of that. And so who is that guy? See, that's, but that's what causes us to sit with it, right? I mean, it, I, I look at that and I, I, okay. So my answer to that question, who is that guy? I think it's a lot of us who have been given the grace of, you know, not necessarily being born into the kingdom of God as a child of Israel, but who um, want to kind of ride the coattails without really putting in the work. All I got to do is put on the wedding clothes. All I have to do is, is go through whatever motions I need to in order to accept the blessing that God has given to me. And I just want to show up and be a moocher on the wedding banquet without going, doing that bare minimum, you know? And so I think, I I wonder, and this is pure speculation on my part, and I'm totally fine with anybody who may disagree with this or have another interpretation, but I see this as the, you know, the Christian who, um, you know, goes to church and wants to claim and, and, well, and does and claims salvation, um, but doesn't necessarily do what God is asking of them. You know, the king asked of these people, hey, yeah, you can come to my banquet, just put on these wedding clothes. And I think God is asking of us, yeah, you you are saved and you're in the kingdom of God. Uh, just love me and love my people. And so I see this as, as kind of the example of the person who... Uh, grace and forgiveness and salvation has been extended to and that person is you know eager to take advantage of that but is not going to kind of make the the changes of their life representative of that so I'm not going to be you know so I'm going to be rude or dismissive or disrespectful to other people I'm I'm going to you know be judgmental and and harsh towards uh, people that I think might be lower than me in one way or another. Uh, and, and I think what Jesus is saying is, no, you got to walk the walk. You got to, you got to walk the walk. If you're really going to accept this, 
then you need to live a life that demonstrates that you're accepting of this. Now, is that me maybe imposing my own worldview on this parable? Perhaps uh, I could, I could, you know, I, I could be guilty of that. Uh, but I do think that there is something to be said for um, for us taking kind of a look at ourselves and how we approach our role as Christians in light of this and other parables. I, I think we read it pretty similarly because I think I think the other aspect of it is that this is someone who you know for, for for one thing okay one one cultural aspect i think to talk about is that you know for the people who rejected the invitation the you know i think a common thought is that at this time especially when you don't have you know google calendars and email and text especially for a big banquet like this what you would have done is basically sent out to everyone hey around this time we're going to have a wedding feast so everybody has already known about that and presumably uh, would, would, especially if it was a king's banquet, um, would, would, would make every effort to be there and may have even previously indicated that they were going to be there. And so then when the servants go back out and say, hey, now the banquet is ready. This is basically the text message to the people, right? Saying, hey, all right, everything's ready. Now you come. And, and a wedding feast at this time isn't just like, you know, hey, five to seven on Saturday. This is like a week-long celebration probably. Yeah. And, and so they've got – so now they, they, they hear that it's ready to come. And now they're, being, they're, they're saying, eh, never mind, we're, we're too busy. And, and so I think that's just one cultural aspect. And so I think though what, what you have then with this guy that comes, at least as I kind of read it now, is you, you have someone who has accepted – the invitation to the party, probably knowing full well what the expectations of him are there, it's probably not like he said yes to the invitation and then found out, oh, now I have to go buy a suit. Well, I don't have money for a suit. You know, like, like we might think for a wedding. It's not like he's, he's RSVP'd to this wedding and then finds out what the dress code is. And it's like, oh, then I'd have to go buy this. And so I'm either not going to go or I'm just not going to wear the right clothes. He probably accepts it knowing fully well what the expectations are. And then by showing up and not adhering to the expectations is, is directly insulting to the king and may even ref- reflect badly on the king in some way. And I do think there's an aspect of that f- for us as Christians that and, – and I think one of the things that I like about this parable and where I think it is fitting is that – we do like to talk for good reason about the love and the inclusiveness and the grace and the mercy of Jesus. And all those things are true. But he also has some expectations of how we're going to live if we are going to be his disciples. Um, and, and I think, you know, it's interesting to me that Jesus, I, I find Jesus to, to be pretty clear about what that means. Like you said, he's like, all right, you got to love God and love people and be kind and <laughs> treat people with, you know, compassion. Um, and, and it's, it's, it's sort of the easy things to say, the harder things to do and live out. So I do think it sounds to me like someone who has accepted the invitation, but doesn't want to go through any of the transformative work of, of, that that Jesus asks us yeah. to go through when we But again, I mean, is there anything is there anything about what you just said that isn't to some degree speculation based on what you be- already believe about Jesus and his teachings? And that's not to say that's not to discount what you said. I think you there's a lot of truth and a lot of of uh important meaning there. But again, we're talking about speculating on something that we simply are uh may struggle with right sure yeah but that's what we're doing as we read the parables right yeah yeah absolutely (laughs) well but i only say that because i think that there is this tendency to want to be definitive oh sure Uh, yeah yeah yeah. no both in the speaker sometimes in the speaker but but as a listener going okay so who is what and how am I to read this? And what's the meaning? As if there is one specific intended meaning behind it. 
Yeah, and I kind of go back to, you know, I, I read this part of Matthew 21 earlier where, where Jesus says to them, John came to you to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And then says, even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. Yeah. I think it's that idea of, of striving to live in the way of righteousness, basically. Mm. And I think that's probably the, the way that I would view this story differently now than I did in the past, where I think, you know, growing up, I, my, my memory of this story is like, because you could sort of take a very legalistic approach to this story. Mm-hmm. You could take a very legalistic approach to it where it says, okay, I've got to check all the boxes and do everything exactly the right way or else I'm subject to God's wrath. And so I've got to make sure I'm correctly interpreting everything. I'm, I'm doing all my worship exactly right, the right way, all of these things so that I'm not subject to, to the wrath of God. And so God can't come to me and say, hey, you didn't get this one thing right, so you're thrown out. Hmm. And... As you say, like I, th- I think we're, we're all sort of reading into to how we interpret that and, and we're projecting in some ways our own theology and our own beliefs about Jesus onto this story. Absolutely. Um, yeah. But I see what he's I, – I see the proper wedding garments, so to speak, for us, not so much as legalism of having to check off all the right boxes, but am I making the effort to, yes. to love others well? Am I making the effort to be the best version of myself that I can be and who God has created me to be? Um, yeah. Or am I just going through the motions, showing up, checking off boxes because of, of whatever other reason? Uh, I think it's about making the effort to live in the way of righteousness, that, that those are the wedding garments. And the, ultimately the fruits of the Spirit, that this is... A life led in the Spirit is going to produce these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, those types of things that is your life producing those things. And if not, it's not only insulting to the king, but you're also reflecting badly on the king. And, yeah. and you're painting the king in a bad light if you've, if you've shown up to his banquet and are choosing to, to not have those things be something you're pursuing. So I... I have a couple of things I want to say about that, and I know we're we're getting close to time, so I'll let you I'll let you wrap it up. But yeah, we'll we'll wrap um, up soon here. I think where this becomes really problematic is if we want to, and if our primary intent, or if our if a in, an intention of our use of scripture is in calling out and being judgmental of other people, mm, yeah, because what that what that what you just described is a reading of the scripture that focuses on the heart and less on the specific actions. That's not to say that specific actions aren't meaningful, aren't important, but it's really the heart that Jesus and uh, that God is interested in winning over. Right. And yeah, do I need to do or say a specific thing, like recite this incantation or perform this specific action, and that will be the key to my salvation? Not so much, but where is your heart? Right. What is it that you're – and again, I don't want to go down the path of like intentions are you know mean everything. Well, they mean something, but not everything. So where is your heart? And if I'm looking at myself – I have a better sense of what's in my heart, what my intentions are, what am I trying to do, how am I trying to represent myself to my neighbor, to God, to the people that I like, the people I don't like. I have a better sense of that than anybody else other than God. I don't have a good sense of that with other people. And so if I'm looking to judge the actions of other people, this is going to be very unsatisfying because if I am look if I'm looking to judge other people, then I can look to well, what are you specifically doing? What are you specifically saying? Do you show up to church every Sunday? Do you dress a certain way? Do you talk a certain way? Do you um, you know make particular donations and do certain things? Those are objective things I might be able to observe in others, and then assess: Are they good Christians or are they not? If the standard becomes what's in your heart, that's a lot harder to judge other people with. And so 
I think that's a good thing. Mm-hmm. I also think that it's something that as humans we struggle with because we want to compare ourselves to others and we want to tell other people when they're doing it well or when they're not doing it well. And and and, and if we're trying if if the uh kind of the main criteria that we're looking for is what's in the heart. Nobody can know that except the person and God. That's it. And it's that's where it's left. That's where I have to kind of give up my, you know, assessment or judgment of other people. And and to that point, in this story, apparently none of the other, you know, servants, people, mm-hmm. kick this guy out for not having the proper clothing on. It's only the yeah. king. <laughs> right. The, the king comes in and is like, hey, dude, how'd you get in here? So right. he presumably would have had to go past several other people in order to get to that point. And none of them stop him. Yeah. It's, it's the king who has the authority to say, no, you, you got to get out of here with, with whatever that is you're wearing. Yeah. Um, and yeah, that's, that's a great question of like, so what was the guy wearing? And, but again, those are just cultural stories. We could make stuff up there, but it would literally be making stuff up. So, right. <laughs> um, but a couple other points I want to make quickly before we, before we wrap up. But I, I think these are good to keep in mind. One, I think one, so if you're, re, if you're kind of interpreting the story the, the way I laid it out earlier with, with kind of the, the, messen, the, the servants representing God's messengers and, and Israel's, especially Israel's leaders, uh, rejecting and mistreating and even killing the prophets, John the Baptist, and, and then eventually Jesus, then... I think there's a question that could come of that that could say, so did God only extend the invitation outside of Israel because Israel's leaders have rejected it? And I don't think that's the case. I think if you go back all the way to Abraham, it was always the plan for God to begin with Israel and build out from there. And again, that's another much longer conversation, but but I just wanted to state that kind of briefly here that to say, it's not like this is in my mind, it's not like this is a change in in course for God that, well, Israel and and the the Israelite people have said no to me. So now I'm going to take it over here. I think it was always the plan that it would start with Israel and build from there, that it was never supposed to be exclusive to Israel, but also never to get to the point where it was to exclude Israel. It's always supposed yeah. to expand out from there and be this ever-expanding kingdom that is always bringing in more and more people and more and more nations. Well, and I think that that is seen in a number of different Old Testament stories as well. The, sto- right. the, the book of Esther, the book of Ruth, uh, among others, that, uh, that clearly indicate that God is expanding you know, his kingdom to include people that might not necessarily have fit under a strictly, uh, Israel, you know, Israelite, uh, model. Yeah. And and another kind of question or point that you brought, brought up earlier that I wanted to to return to real quick, because we, we kind of started there and then got away from it. Because there is, of course, the violence at the end of the story. But as you said, there's the violence before that, where it says the, uh, the rest of the servants were mistreated and killed. So then the king gets mad, sends his army and destroys those murderers and burn their city. And so what do we do with that? What do we do with, <laughs> with, with that element? And so the best, the best sort of answer that's that one of those, that's one of those verses that I just kind of gloss over and <laughs> I'm just going to pretend doesn't, isn't actually. Well, here I think this isn't original to me. This is, you know, having the benefit of reading a lot of other people's thoughts on it and podcasts and whatever else. I think what makes the most sense there is that what Jesus is talking about there is the coming destruction of Jerusalem at the hands of Rome. Because it's something he's going to prophesy about and point to even in the next chapter. He talks about the temple being destroyed. You know, he says it's it's one of the most blasphemous thing that's in in the eyes and ears of some of the Jewish people at the time is when he says, you know, destroy this temple and I'll build it again in three days. And there's a little bit of sort of pointing toward the coming destruction of that literal temple in addition to just Jesus' own death. And, and then in chapter 23, right after this chapter, Jesus says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you. So again, those are some allusions right back to the story. How often I have longed to gather you children, your children together as, as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. 
For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And so I think there's a bit of sort of live by the sword, die by the sword nature to this, that you could read this as the king's army that's coming in to destroy these murderers and burn their city is, is actually going to be Rome that comes in and will eventually destroy Jerusalem. And, and that seems to happen in part because of violence incited by the religious zealots in Israel at the time, who sort of their aggressions finally get to Rome and Rome comes in and just knocks them out. And so you've still got some questions there about, well, why is Rome's army then attributed to God's army in this story and things like that? And I think that's where, again, maybe, you know, all metaphors break down. But I think that's him sort of connecting to the king in this story, what will eventually befall Jerusalem by way of Rome. Well, and with that in mind, I hadn't really thought about that. But notice that the next part of Matthew's gospel is about paying imperial taxes to Caesar. To Caesar, yeah. And how the Pharisees, you know, attempt to trap him in and ask him about paying taxes to Caesar. And, uh, you know, Jesus doesn't take the bait, you know, uh, famously. He says, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Uh, and, and so I think that, that there's probably at least some degree the Pharisees may have recognized uh, some of the parallels that that Je- that Jesus was bringing with uh, with regards to the Roman government and and how it might come and destroy. So I don't, I don't know that they necessarily drew as as direct a line as you did, perhaps. Uh, but there's at least some kind of knowledge and acknowledgement and fear of of you know what Rome could potentially and may inevitably do. Right. Absolutely. All right. Well, that's probably a good place for us to stop for today. So, Jason, I yeah. appreciate you you joining me for this conversation. And uh, as always, if you have questions, your own thoughts, feel free to reach out to either of us. These are things that are good to think about conversationally. And as we both said, we all have to approach these parables with humility and with an open mind. So, so if you've got other thoughts you'd like to throw around with either of us about these things, or at least I'll say for me, I'd certainly be happy to continue those conversations, but appreciate everyone listening and hope there was something in here that was, that was useful.